You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Social Justice Champion, San Francisco Bay Area Interfaith Leader, and first Global Council Chair of URI. During 100 years old, Rita Semmel spent most of her life building bridges between diverse religious and ethnic groups. Rita is a leading voice in rallying people against discrimination in San Francisco and around the world. Today, we draw on her experiences of a lifetime. Take a listen. You have had an opportunity to work in interreligious dialogue for some time. When did you first develop an interest in all of this? If I go back to World War II, I was married in 1942, and my husband was an infantry officer, and I traveled with him before he went overseas. He landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day, plus three. But before that, he was stationed in various places in the American South. This is 1942, 43, 44. And we were in Alabama and northern Florida and Mississippi before I left for overseas. And up until that time, I was 20 when I was married. Up until that time, I'd lived only in New York and San Francisco. So the South was a complete eye-opener for me at that time. And the first time that I saw bathrooms marked colored and white, I couldn't believe my eyes. And so that was another college education. Mm-hmm. And then traveling with him in the Army and seeing the different people from different places, having to learn to get along with each other, mm-hmm. was also an eye-opener. And when he went overseas, I came back to San Francisco, and I got a job as a copy boy on the Chronicle. And I had a sign a statement that said, I have taken the job of a man who was in the service, and when he comes back, I will give up my job. You had to sign that. Can you imagine that I can't imagine today. Yeah. And that was expected. That was expected. Anyway, working first as a copy boy and then as a reporter, I learned a great deal about Mm -hmm. city government, about how the city ran and what was going on. And I found that I didn't want to stop working when when my husband came home. I know in 1945, women were not not supposed to work. They were supposed to stay home. And he came back from the service? Yes, he landed on Omaha Beach, as I said, on D-Day Plus 3. He was pinned down before the breakout at St. Lowe for a number of weeks. And I'm sure he had a number of friends who did not survive that. Yeah, he, he was wounded, spent a number of months in the hospital, but he did come home which I was eternally grateful. And I was very fortunate. I had a husband who understood that I didn't want to stay home, that I wanted to to do work, and it was fine. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, I'm sure if I wanted to stay home, he would have been much happier, but Mm -hmm. he never let me know it. Mm -hmm. He was very supportive. Because of the fact that I was supposedly temporarily at the Chronicle, Mm One of the only women reporters on the staff who had been there before the war told me that she had a friend who was starting a weekly Jewish newspaper. A Jewish, in San Francisco, a Jewish newspaper? Yeah. Brand new? Yeah. It was called the Northern California Jewish Bulletin. Okay. 
and uh, he was he, he had been the managing editor of another newspaper in, in town, and he was looking for an associate editor, and she recommended me. And she said, "You've done very well, and maybe they'll keep you. But mm-hmm. if they do, you'll go back to working nights and weekends. Your husband's coming home." And so he offered me the job, and it was nine to five. And so I continued to work there until I had my first child. What year was that? 1950. And then I did freelance public relations for a number of years. And doing that, I got to meet all kinds of different people. I did freelance for United Way for a while. So, and I did for various other organizations. It was the time when uh, Israel was about to come into being. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of concern about that. And I worked on, on that for Narcaiser Public Affairs Committee. Mm-hmm. And I did various other things. And uh, I finally ended up with the Jewish, at the Jewish Community Relations Council. And I was there for a number of years. I ended up as the executive director. Oh, you were? Yeah. Okay. And when I retired, I had, and as, as the director of that, I was involved with all kinds of other organizations. I guess you just call me a busybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you met all these people. Uh, yeah. I see the pattern of mm-hmm. meeting people and being curious about who they are, and but not being a bystander in life. No. Right? Really well, being I, engaged in I, your career. And, yeah. There's a basic tenet of Judaism called tikkun olam, uh, yeah. repair the world. And you take that seriously. I take it very seriously. And what I've found, interestingly enough, over the years working with people of other religions. In fact, I had this conversation with the current Episcopal Bishop, Mark Andrus, and we both ended up by saying that if you boil down every religion to its essence, it's all about repairing the world. Yeah. Judaism has found a way to say that in very clear terms to Kun Alam, and you can build a whole life by it, can't you? Mm-hmm. Is that what you did? Is that what you... Oh, I believe in that. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that's what we're here to do. You know, we have a number who will listen to this and ask questions like, what are the values that should shape my life? What are the values or virtues that should shape one's life today? When you answer well, that, I guess I can. Respond? I guess I learned it from my parents. I grew up during the Depression. We lived in New York. But no matter how little we had, my parents felt that we had to do something for other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned it at my parents' knees. That was the way it was. You just couldn't do for yourself. Mm-hmm. You had to do for other people. One of the things we're working on in the university and what we see in society today is also the rise of hate groups, anti-Semitism. Some of this may feel a little bit like it did in the early 30s. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's your thinking on what's happening to us right now? Well, I think the feelings were there all the time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we have someone in the White House whose actions have given people permission, mm-hmm. I think. Have you, ever seen, a, have you ever seen a president like this? No. Do anything like this? No. It's pretty stunning. I'm trying to be polite about it. Well, you're being very clear. It's helpful. <laughs> you, you've earned the right to your opinions. <laughs> and I, all of this. I can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, every day I think to myself, how did we find ourselves in this mess? Yeah. So he's given some permission. And then... Well, because he, he has no filter. Mm-hmm. What, what's on his tongue is on, on his mouth is on his tongue mm-hmm. and comes out. Mm-hmm. 
and I mean, we could see it in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. That was that was, that was the first indication. I think and, and, uh, Pittsburgh, with people on recently. both sides. Yeah. I mean, imagine saying that yeah. with people on both sides. And you're dealing with hate groups and uh, those who are inciting violence. And yeah, what do you think of when you're advising youth about the kinds of values that should shape their lives today? I hear you saying, "Well, curiosity about others goes a long way." Well, and I think. If you give yourself the opportunity, you find you have more in common than you think. My life has been so enriched by all the people that I've met, and I feel sorry for people who live in a silo and never get out of it. Yeah. Or however comfortable that silo might be. Yeah, silos have a way of doing that. Yeah. If there's a question that you think we need to be asking ourselves today as a society, we could ask five questions a minute. But if there was one in your mind right now that you said, I think this is something we need to deal with, or it's a question we need to address, and you would commend the generation right now to do that, what would that be? What kind of a world do we want to leave our children and our grandchildren? Okay. Do we want to leave a world in which everybody can thrive? To me, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. We have to leave a world that people can thrive and be who they are and make the most of who they are. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.